Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And I got to tell you, I am beside myself on this one, and you'll understand why as we go through this. But we have the ever amazing Joe Foster. And if you don't know who that is, if you know the word Reebok or that sports shoe line and apparel line, et cetera, Reebok, Joe Foster is the founder of it. And so I cannot wait to dive into his story because I've read his book cover to cover and it's amazing. But Joe, we're going to start with a heartbeat question for you. You and Julie, the last time that you and I talked, you were in Dubai and now you're in the Canary Islands and you're going to be traveling again somewhere else. So you're in an airport traveling. Somebody sees you. They say, hey, that's Joe Foster. They start talking about you not realizing that you can overhear everything that they're saying about you, what would you want somebody to say about you, Joe? I don't know if I want anything that's particular. In fact, I'm not that famous. I doubt if anybody would recognize me as we're going through an airport or whatever. But, you know, um, these things do happen. I, I know that these things do happen. And uh, they'd probably be saying, I thought that guy died. Uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's still around. <laughs> oh, I was going to shake his hand. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You're very much alive, and uh, I think you run circles around me. So I think that that's saying something. So Ben, <laughs> take I us know, through. There we go. <laughs> yep. So, like Gary had said, Joe is the founder of Reebok. He's also the author. That book that Gary was talking about is called Shoemaker. And then Joe is in the uh, the process of working on, on another book project with 30 different contributors that's going to be called Survive and Thrive. And we're hoping that that comes out sometime later this year in 2023. So, exactly. Joe, what I would like to do to start this out is is go back and, and kind of paint a picture pre-Reebok, right? So can you take us back to your grandfather starting J.W. Foster's and just give us an idea of what that looks like in the evolution there? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Shoemaker and the great thing about the family is it did allow me to take take this way, way back to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to 1895, he's a youngster. He's only uh, 14 years old, and uh, yeah, he was an athlete. Not a good one, but an athlete. He loved running. He loved running. And uh, he was also a cobbler, as was his grandfather. And... Uh, he, he used to go to his grandfather, who was about 60 miles away from Bolton, which is the origin of the J.W. Foster brand. And his, uh, his grandfather used to repair not only street shoes, but also cricket boots. Now, cricket boots, and cricket goes back a long, long way, and cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. And uh, we assume, he asked his grandfather, why do they have spikes in the bottom of cricket boots? And, of course, the answer would be to give them grip. They, they need that grip because when you're on uh, you're on grass and you're batting or you're bowling, bowling in particular, you don't want to be sliding all over the place. So grip. And being an athlete, that gave me an idea. Why, I, why don't I try putting some nails or spikes into my shoes when I'm out running? Because I used to run on cinder tracks. And you run on a cinder track or you run on grass, same thing applies. You're slipping. So uh, so that's how he, he became known to have invented the spike running shoe. And uh, he, he certainly pioneered it if he didn't invent it. So he pioneered it. And, you know, he knew something about uh, influencing. Because by 1904, he had three world records in his shoe. 
And that was done in, in one race in Glasgow in a one-hour event. During the one-hour event, the guy broke uh, three world records. So that's, you know, I mean, that's going back way, way back. And then, of course, well, during the second decade, we had World War One. Nobody wanted running shoes, so they repaired army boots. But in the 20s, the 1920s, we've got three athletes, three athletes, Eric Little, Harold Abrahams and Lord Burley, all British. They all won gold medals. And those gold medals were won in Foster's running shoes. And they became the people, they were immortalised in the film Chariots of Fire. So I think a lot of people, most people have heard of the film Chariots of Fire. Well, those, the actual athletes who won those gold medals wore my grandfather's shoes. Now that, that's great. My grandfather died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935 but I happened to be born on his birthday 15 months after he died. So, of course, that puts me in a little sort of uh, position where grandmother saw, yes, he's come to carry on my husband's work. So grandmother looked after me all the time. And, uh, okay, so we, we're talking now 19, 1935, four years later, we had World War II. So I'm just a youngster, and it, Everything is blacked out. We have no lights on. It's incredible. We could see the bombs. Well, we couldn't see the bombs dropping. We could see the results of a bombs dropping on Manchester, which was about 10 miles away. And Bolton is slightly elevated from uh, Manchester, so we, we saw all the glow of the red. And so I'm brought up during the war. But, you know, you're a kid. And when you're a kid, well, that's that's what you're brought up to. You don't know any difference. So, you know, you do, all, you do the best you can and you just enjoy life as best you can. But dedication didn't really start... Uh, until I was 10 years old. That's the end of the war in 1945. And, uh, well, we got some education. I, I managed to go to college. Um, I did engineering. Uh, and then I, 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 at 17 years old, I went into the factory and started making running shoes. My brother, Jeff, who was older than me, he, he'd been in the factory since he was 14. So he was only a youngster when he, he started the factory. Well, 17 years old, I start in the factory. One year later, only one year, I had to do national service. We used to have national service just after the war. All, all men had to go do two years of national service. So uh, nothing spectacular. Off we went. Actually, Jeff went at the same time. So we're both doing national service. And what national service did is a bit like going to uni or a bit like going to college. Is it takes you away from home. You start to look after yourself. You start to do, oh, I can do a bit of that. And I can, you know, you start to learn some things that uh, you didn't do. And mother's not there to make the bed, make your meals, do all the stuff that you normally, you know, normally mothers do. So you, uh, you, you take notice of a few more things going on in life. And that's okay. I enjoyed that. We came back from national service and we came back to a failing company. Now, Possibly if we'd, we'd never gone away, maybe we wouldn't have seen the company was a failing company. But we came back and we started asking questions. Why are we not doing this? Why is this company called Adidas now making footballs come, come taking our business away? What are we going to do about it? Well, nothing really. You know, and, and this, this became the problem. It, it only took two years of coming back from national service, just a bit more than two years, for Jeff and I to realise we're not going to get anywhere here. And I used to ask my father, you know, look, you don't get on with your brother. 
which is true. My father and uncle, they were at war with each other. A bit like Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler. But Rudy Dassler had the good sense to go and set up Puma. Uh, the Foster family, they just kept feuding and fighting. And that was it. And uh, I said, my dad, well, you know, why don't we do something separate? Why don't you come and we'll do, you know, set up a different company? And all my father could say is, hey, look, Joe, uh, when I'm gone and your uncle's gone, this is your company. You can do what you want with it. Well, I said, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not in our plans. We don't want you to go. But this company will be gone long before you are gone. Did it make any difference? No, it didn't. So Jeff and I, we uh, we went to college. We went to college to learn a little bit more about shoemaking. But what we really gained from going to college, which is a sh shoemaking college, of course, and what we, what we learned from that is that we got a lot of friends, a lot of people that could help us because we decided we had father wouldn't do anything and it's no good asking uncle he was he did his own thing so we had to do it ourselves but you know we needed a lot of help where do you get the machinery from we, we decided we'd set up a factory machinery and the good thing about going there to the college is that hey you can get this machine from here so they helped us with machinery with materials such a lot of things so when we did leave uh, it was late 1958 we had a lot of people who were at the uh, shoemaking college that just helped us, and that was great. So that's 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 the early part of the Foster family. As I say, my grandfather, he had a he had a wonderful business, but in those days, everything was performance. I mean, nowadays we're all fashion, we're all street, it's everywhere, but in those days, it was just performance. And I, and I said earlier, my. My grandfather definitely knew how to influence people because he gave his shoes to top athletes. And when they, they won races, of course, this was seen and therefore his business grew on that. And uh, so he had a really good business. In fact, he even, um, well, it wasn't during his time, but Foster's even started um, selling to the States. In fact, they sold to Yale University. A guy called um, G and Jack and the other one was Frank Ryan. Frank Ryan and I think it was Bob G and Jack. They were, they were coaches at Yale, and they decided they could import Foster shoes. They used to take about 200 pairs a month, which was quite healthy, and I think they sold them to other universities round and about. So we, we did have a slight knowledge that was a, of the market there in America. But uh, as I say, the problem is that my father and uncle, they just didn't... I don't know whether they didn't need the future or whether two world wars had taken away their enthusiasm Something had taken it away, and they were just happy to just do what they were doing, and it, they didn't see a future, whereas we did. So we left, and we set up our company called Mercury Sports Footwear. So before we get into Mercury Sports and then the evolution of that, it's just it's so intriguing that you hear today people talk about influencer marketing as if it's this brand new idea. Right. And, it, and it's not. And so it's amazing that your grandfather was doing this back in the, the start of the 1900s and, Absolutely. and having success from that. So you guys come back and you see you see that this business is failing. And, and I, I think you bring up a good point of leaving and coming back almost gives you that outside perspective. Right. Gary talks all the time. He sa says all the time that you can't read the, uh, the label on a jar when you're inside the glass. And it's a great point, right? So 
do exactly what you just said. So, but either way, you come back and you see this, and you guys go on to make Mercury Sports. When you're doing that, Foster's obviously had a lot of success for a long amount of time. What did you what did you and your brother do as you were making that transition of trying to figure out, hey, what are the things that this company did correctly that we want to apply to ours? What are the things that they're doing incorrectly that we need to fix? Well, you know, we were, I guess we were naive because the, the, the most important thing we wanted to do was have a future. Mm-hmm. We knew that with the Foster, the Foster brand, it was going to die. That, that, that was for certain. So we, in, in order to have a future, we had to do it for ourselves. So that, number one, the first thing is necessity. The necessity was we got to move away. And, you know, we, we played we played with a straight bat. We, we played it straight because we didn't even compete with running. We actually started making cycle shoes because we didn't want to be competitors. We, we wanted to find somewhere else. And this was the first time that we, we really started to understand white space. And white space for us was where can we go that we don't have the competition? How, how can we change something to make it good? And we, so we went into cycling so that we were not competing. So and real quick, was, Joe, on that, when you say not have competition, do you mean specifically with your father's brand? Or do you just mean, in general, going to a spot that doesn't have a lot of competition? Well, in the first case, it was specifically with father's brand, with Foster. Uh, but we did realize that this was not a bad thing because taking people like Adidas on head-to-head with, say, football, soccer, as far as it can taking them head-to-head was just an expensive game and we would never have made it we needed to creep around the bank we needed to open different doors and find one and because we did that with fossils we thought well also well what do we do now we you know we, we're getting bigger we we became known uh for athletics in the uk um we were very close to athletics itself we used to go to athletics meetings we, we would sell out of the back of the car we would and, and we were very close to the local athletes in bolton and Bury, all around us and they used to come to our factory and you know on a saturday morning it would be all talk about where's the next race what's going on everything and uh, yeah and if we wanted something doing if we needed some electrical work doing there was always an electrician there amongst the athletes and yeah so they would do something, but we'd give them a pair of shoes. So really, we got very close to our market. You know, we, we were not going through a retail process where we had to be a wholesaler and you get to the retailer, the retailer get. No, we were, we were really doing direct selling even then. I mean, direct selling now is something which is becoming more and more uh, visible. The athlete, the uh, sports stores are becoming more and more direct with the customer. So uh, that's what we were doing at that time. And yes, it did mean that we could uh, do things like rugby boots. Now, rugby rugby union is quite big in the UK, but rugby league, rugby league was a small North of England sport. Very similar. It's a similar game. Um, but Adidas hadn't heard of rugby league. <laughs> they knew all about rugby union. So this was white space. So we we again could grow our business in the, in these areas. And uh, so that's how we started, and we start and we grew quite nicely. Of course, uh, then then we we get problems. You know, we I'm 23, Jeff's 25, and at that age, and certainly at that time, in the in the 50s and early 60s, uh, sport wasn't such a big big business. 
We were naive. We didn't expect, I guess we didn't expect the problems. We certainly didn't expect that uh, um, our accountant would say, look, you better register that name of yours. Why? You know, what? why would I register? Well, you, you know, you're doing nicer. You're making money. Um, people are buying your product. And by this time, by the way, Foster's had gone out of business. 18 months after we had started, Foster's actually went out of business. And uh, so we went we went into the athletics market. That became our market as well. So we, we grew with athletics as well as uh, cycling. And uh, so we asked the account, well, why, why do we need to register the name? Well, I mean, now it seems a very simple thing that you should register your name. But in those days, back in the late 50s, early 60s, <laughs> We we didn't realize that because if we were if we were to call ourselves JW Foster, which we couldn't, even though everybody in the family, all the males, were JW Foster. So we could have said JW Foster, but that would have been a clash. We didn't want to do that. So we were Mercury. Mercury, we thought that was a nice name, good name. Why not? Um so our accountants said, Well, if you if somebody else thinks that Mercury is a good name and starts to make Mercury running shoes, cycle shoes. What are you going to do? Because uh, that's sort of unfair competition. They're picking up on your name. So I realized, okay, then we better register the name. And you've read the book and other people have read the book. We realized that uh, I did. Go to see an agent. The agent looked at this and he came up with the fact that it was already pre-registered. Oh, our first problem. What do we do? Well, the agent said... Uh, there's two things. One, uh, you can buy it if, if you want to buy it, or you just have to change your name. And uh, I asked, how much would it cost to buy it? Because these guys weren't using it. The British Shoe Corporation was a massive corporation. They probably had a dozen different names registered, or dozens of different names, and they had Mercury. They weren't using it, so they offered it to us for a £1,000. Now, if you consider we just set up our factory, the whole factory, for £250. Machinery, everything, even our, our materials. And uh, so I looked at the guy and said, I'm sorry, we, we've not got £1,000. And the bank would never lend us £1,000 at this stage in our, uh, our development as a company. Uh, so he said, well, if you can't buy it off, the, you can take them to court. Uh, because they're not using it. And if they're not using it, you can. You, it's quite fair to take them to court and so they would have to give it to you. And uh, so how much will it cost us to go to court? He said £1,000. So <laughs> I said, well, I mean, if I couldn't afford to buy it, I can't afford to take them to court either. So he said, well, okay, then you have to think of a new name. And it was a nice day. It was in May, nice day. And he pointed through his window, which was open, he pointed to Kodak. And I'm saying, what's with Kodak? I said, well, it's an invented name. They made it up. That's their name. Nobody can question that. Oh, right. So he said, but don't bring me one name. Bring me 10. And I'm looking at him and saying, you know, this is our business. How can we sort of gamble on 10 names? You know, we like Mercury, but... Well, if you can't buy it and you can't take them to court, you have to bring me 10 names because we don't want to go one at a time and finding that it's impossible because it's already pre-registered. Uh, it takes 
it takes almost a month to go through that process because in those days it was sending letters, waiting for a reply. And, you know, one's a matter of having a Zoom like this, one's a matter of opening your uh, computer or your smartphone. They didn't exist. So, okay, let's do 10 names. So I went back, we sit around the table, my brother and our wives, and we sit around there and we start thinking names like Cougar. That's a good name. Hulkan. That's a good name, yeah. Let me take you back to 1943. 1943, I'm eight years old, and we're in the middle of World War II. Just like COVID, people couldn't travel. No would go. So, But they had local events. And I happened to win an 80-yard race. I was wearing Foster Spikes, of course, which did help. And But I won my race, and I went up to collect my prize. And what did I get? Well, a lot of people know now, but I got a dictionary. And it was a Webster's Dictionary, which, as you all know, is an American dictionary. We're in the UK, and I win, in the middle of World War II, an American dictionary. The spellings on certain words are different. Um, but I've got my American dictionary. I, I'm a little bit brassed off, and I'm, a little, I'm sort of saying, where's the football? Like, you know, what can I do with the dictionary? Uh, anyway, I got a dictionary. And here I am now, fast forward, 1960. And I am looking for a name. And I like the letter R. Don't ask me why. But I like the letter R. I open the book at R. And I start thumbing through. And it's not long that you get to R-E. And I get to R-E-B-O-K. Reebok, what's that? And I read it. It's a small South African gazelle. Now we're a running company. Gazelle. Fantastic. That's it. Reebok. Put that top of the list. We did do. I had another eight or even more names as well. I'd got Cougar, I'd got Falcon, <clears throat> I got all these names and went back to the uh, to the agent. And I said, look, we have to be in love with this. This is our future. It's something that we, we it really means such a lot to us. And we want that name, Reebok. And he said, well, we'll try. We'll see what we can do. We'll put all these these names forward, which he did. I think about two, three weeks later, he came back and said, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. Oh, one caveat. And that is that if somebody starts making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Oh, right. Um, I'm just going to do that. You know, I'm just going to do that. I said to Jeff, who's going to be doing that? And nobody did eventually. So uh, because of that, the uh, the registrar said, well, we're going to have to put you in the B section of the register. You know, up to a month ago, we hadn't even known there was a register, so it didn't matter to us. We're in the register. We've done what we need to do. We've changed our name. We're going to be called Reborn. Ten years later, the registrar came back to us and said, we've moved you now to the A section of the register. Oh, Why? Well, he said, everybody now knows that uh, Reebok is a shoe. They don't know it as an animal anymore. So that's how it became Reebok. But point with the Webster's Dictionary is that had I, had I been looking at an Oxford English Dictionary at that time, I would have had the spelling of R-H-E-B-O-K. And I don't think that R-H would have struck me as being... Just that, I don't think it would have been the same. 
So there we are with Rebo. Bound to believe be okay. <laughs> so there's there's so many things from this already that I'm like, man, I'm I'm taking more notes. I already have five pages of notes, but now I got two more. <laughs> A couple things, Joe, that are just so impressive for me. One, the humility, even in how you answered, <laughs> and you've got a very good sense of humor, which is hilarious. I love you uh, just for that. But the way you honor your father, you know, the you know, a lot of times, at least in America, the third generation destroys the company. Unfortunately, in your situation, the second generation, and I think you brought up a really good point. World two world wars running a company is hard enough. Yes. And it can be very lonely and trials and tribulations are real. And, and you just talked about kind of the first one. And I know about the other ones that <laughs> in your book, and we got to get to those. But um, so I think that there's that could have definitely played into what your father and your uncle went through. Um, you know, it may have just taken their spirit a little bit, but um, you understood the need to learn and to learn from others. And you understood the need for others perspectives you had the humility to also pay attention to your cpa and your accountant <laughs> because <laughs> uh, that really helped you but you also un understood marketing you know the fact that um you know that lineage with your grandfather being understanding you know marketing and sales and that's the other thing from your book so I'd, we want to keep going in your 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 journey because it's so fascinating. But for anybody listening, you know, pay attention to those kind of milestones and the, those mile markers um, because you could have the best product in the world, but if you don't figure out how to have your name be recognized and the fact that you move from B register to A register for Reebok to now overtake the meaning in everybody's minds at this point is, oh, it's a shoe and not a South African antelope you know, or gazelle uh, so it's an antelope i think right yes yeah so anyway keep going joe thank you <laughs> this has been so good that's a pleasure yes <laughs> thank you so joe as we keep going forward i want want you to take the listeners through a couple of these early hurdles right so you talked about how you got to the reebok name what are some of those first big business hurdles that you guys had to face? Well, I, I guess the uh, the next big one, and uh, we, we're talking about the visibility of a company. We talk about the name. That's very important to the company, the visibility of the name. And the next one was we were four years into our business, and uh, we get a letter. And we get a letter from the uh, lawyers of Adidas, which say... Because at that point, we, we had um, a silhouette. And our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar. And the uh, the editor's lawyers were claiming, well, we think that that's an infringement of our three stripes. We didn't, but then again, they did. And Jeff and I, we sort of looked at each other for a few minutes. What are we going to do? Then we seem to sort of recognize the fact that, just a minute, Adidas feel it necessary to send us a letter. We're a small company. They're massive. But they, they seem to feel that they can send us, they know we're here. <laughs> All of a sudden, they know we're here. Wow, that's brilliant. 
pin that letter on the wall. What do we do next? We change our silhouette. Of course we're changing our silhouette. And we came up with a vector. And uh, the vector, if you look at that, I think the vector is better than the two stripes on the T-bar. Just as the name is better, Reebok is better than Mercury. So we're thinking, well, you know, these may seem, when we, when we first meet these problems, it, it does seem as though somebody's trying to kick us. But maybe they just give us a gentle nudge to say, you can do better. You can probably do better than this. And we <laughs> did. And that, that, that be almost became our, our sort of reason for the, for the business. Our, our motto was, you know, we, we, can, we can do better. We can do something a lot better. And so we, we came up with a, a better job. And uh, I mean, it surprises me, in fact, um, some of the things that are still relevant at Reebok. Adidas took them away. Adidas changed the name styling. Adidas changed the, the silhouette and put a, a delta on the side. And the company went really down. And it wasn't until about five years before they sold the brand, that they must have got somebody new in the company. Somebody new in marketing came along and said, what are you doing that to Reebok for? Why don't you look at the original designs and the original lettering, how it, that style of lettering, that font they're using. They took it all the way back. And now we still have that font and that font and, the, and that uh, silhouette. Okay, and there are a number of uh, other points which were designed back there in the in the sixties and seventies, which are now really points that identify the brand, and then, and I think that uh, that's one of the things over a period of time. You, know, you, you look at some of the brands, you look at Adidas themselves. Three stripes identifies that brand, uh, just as the swoosh identifies Nike. I think now we look and the uh, the vector identifies uh, Reebok. And uh, so does the letter styling, the styling of the, of the name. So the, the, the sort of, you know, those were two big ones. Okay, we, we had other financial problems as we, we got on in life. And, uh, uh, you know, there were numerous occasions when people said you can't. And we said, okay, we either can or we change. But we didn't, we didn't get stuck with trying to make it happen. That, you know, going head to head. And like I said, white space was very important. And the other, the other important thing for us was my father and uncle had fought. Adidasa and uh, Rudidasa had fought. And that was nearly bringing, in Adidas's point, that, that gave them a lot of problems. In, in the Foster family, that really did destroy the business. And we're two brothers. And you start off as a partnership. Of course, when, when you limit the company as it would do in England. That means you, you, you're equal shareholders. So that really is a potential for a big problem as you grow. And uh, we, I, I, Jeff and I never fell out. But uh, I think one of the reasons was I was probably the most outspoken one. And in fact, when we left the, the parent company, I got blamed. I got blamed. It, it wasn't Jeff that did this. You must have... Uh, persuaded him to go and there was no such thing he was as eager to go as I was he was just eager <clears throat> but uh, however Jeff said look I, can I look after the factory and I said I'd love you to <laughs> and if you've read the book you realize that no I'm not a good shoemaker not that I'm not a good shoemaker it's just that I don't want to make shoes That's, that, I didn't feel that that was me for the rest of my life 
making shoes. No, uh, I could design them. I could do more stuff. So Jeff said, I'll look after the factory. Can you look after everything else? Well, what that meant is that I said, yes, I'll do that. that. So I'm not going to be in the factory. I'm going to be working on other things, marketing work. I, I had to find the pulse. I had to give it a heartbeat. And that, that became my job. Find the pulse for the brand. Let's make it come to life. So, and I guess that's whatever marketing is and whatever else helps to make that company grow. And I knew once we got to a certain size in the UK that we didn't need to really expand our product line because the UK market was never that big. But if we got a bigger market, our existing product line would give us the, vol the volume that we, we really need to expand or grow the company. Uh, and now, of course, it's scaling the company. You know, <laughs> This is one of the things of uh, having all these meetings with uh, MBA students. Now we, we scale the company. We don't grow it. So I, I learned now <laughs> we have to scale the company. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you don't change direction anymore. You now pivot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole new concept, Joe. <laughs> kind of like influencer marketing. Uh, tell, you, tell that to your grandfather. <laughs> That's right. So to scale our company, I needed to get to America. In fact, we were talking, as I said earlier, we, we had a, a Zoom call with Evander Holyfield. And he's, he's a Chicago boy. And he's trying to do really good things now for the west side of Chicago, where he grew up, and it's a real rough area. Um, but I know Chicago, because I used to go there from 1968. I went there every year for 11 years. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. We didn't we didn't get on to the fact that I was going there, but uh, uh, just thinking about uh, Evander Wallerfield and coming from... We're, we're, we're members of... Uh, the Vine Group, or the oh yeah, the Vine Group were a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and uh, philanthropists, and uh, this guy is the drummer for Lenny Kravitz, and so he comes from Chicago. He's the drummer for Len Lenny Kravitz, and he was talking about giving money back to, he's, and he's building a school there in Chicago, uh, on the west side of Chicago. See, Julie's right all the time. I I knew. Well, every every man should know that that the woman is always right. That, that's why you're still kicking so well, man. Good for you. There so, we go. I, I want to go back to one of the things uh, you know in the story that, that I found was really interesting. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this, Joe, and I've been in partnerships. I still believe in them, and I've gotten burned extremely badly in them, <laughs> but. I still believe in them, but yeah. the division of what you love to do, your thrive zone and and eliminating the wither. And you said, hey, I'm not a really great um, shoemaker. You can do it, but it's not what you love to do. Well, that's in your wither zone. You may be good at it. And I just thought that was very interesting that you guys both did that. And if you please read the book, because there's some very interesting stories. I mean, for Joe, to mortgage your house, buy a, a decrepit factory, because that's all you could afford, move into that with your wife, Jean, and then right. for Jeff to come in at some point 
right. with the other Gene and his wife is named Gene. <laughs> and then for you to both be living in a less than ideal factory with one bathroom with two newlyweds is like, I mean, that that's challenging. But then you also talked about there was a, a time where the th- your very existence was threatened going back to that registration because um, you registered internationally, but it was very expensive and you had some you had a hostile creditor going after you. Well, that was it. It's probably something even today. I, I can't understand why the, the creditor who really uh, tried to wind up our business was in actual fact the trademark register man, the man I'd gone to to get the trademark uh, and who had told me I need to register this, this and this. And we'd agreed, yes, well, we'll do America. We'll do, I think, America, Japan and Europe. And that's going to be expensive. And they're the, yeah. they're the ones, they're the, they're, they became the ones that uh, wanted to put us out of business. And which was like, you know, how can you sort of ask me to spend this money because I need to, to register. And then you're the ones you won't listen to. You won't join with me and we can come up to a nice arrangement where I pay you over a period of time. So that's that's still amazed me. And in fact, they did this without even saying, if you don't pay us, we're going to uh, put a winding up order on the company. They never even said that. And it was just a letter that came, and it came from the courts, the winding up. So fortunately, I had a very good lawyer, by accident maybe, but he was a very good lawyer. And he just, uh, well, he, I think the, the court threw it out because we had offered to make the payment, but over time. And uh, they were told they've got to give us time to do that. But, uh, I mean, it is it is amazing that when you're very small, and, uh, you know, I know now when we go to these the MBA uh, lectures, they ask me to come along, and especially the executive MBAs, and they say, like, right, Joel, what was your exit plan? Exit plan? <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't have an exit plan. Where did you get your seed money? What's <laughs> thing is money? We have to struggle. You know, if, if you wanted to get any money at all, you either knew somebody or you went to the bank. And if you went to the bank, the bank wanted collateral. And if you hadn't got collateral, the bank sort of said, well, you know, we'll give you a little bit. So you might have got an overdraft or something very small, but seed when they know. And uh, yeah, exit plan? No, we didn't have an exit plan. No. <laughs> <coughs> Business has totally changed today. <clears throat> well, but some things are still the same, and that is passion, grit, vision, and tenacity and uh, resilience, because your your story is all about that, because you had many times when you were kind of on the brink, and you had loyal employees who believed in you and stuck by you in some very dire times. Um, talk a little bit about that, because everybody thinks, you know, Reebok, and especially when I think about kind of the zenith where you guys had a couple, you had three five-star re, um, reviews on in runner's world, you know, with the Aztec and all that. And, you know, people are like, well, well, that's, that's Reebok. And they, they think of, you know, multi-billion dollar brand, but you were many times on, you know, kind of a last breath or really struggling because cash flow is a huge thing, especially in a, 
capital intensive where you're buying inventory, you've got to have distribution, all of those things. So talk to us about some of those struggles with cash flow, with distribution and all that before the breakthrough started coming because you were in a dogfight for so long. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the, the good thing, the good thing, Gary, is we were young at that time. And when you're young, you know, you can you can get through a lot of things. It's, uh, I, I I often think back, how did you do that, Joe? How did you, when you were traveling, how did you manage to jump on planes and just do things? Like that? You know, but how did you get through those miserable times? Well, you know, we had a lot of fun. And, and and I think if you if you really are enjoying a lot of things, okay, not every day is fun. But you know, if you can make fun out of what you're doing, it, it's amazing how that is a real boost. That really gives you the adrenaline to get come over the, the problems. And when <clears throat> when it's the same time when the guy was taking us to uh winding up, I I in order to pay him, I had to put other people off. But you know, it, it was necessary for me to go and see. Go and see the managing director or the CEO. Just go along and say, "Look, I got a problem, and this is this is my problem. Can you help me?" And they did. Everybody helped, apart from the guy who did the winding up petition. Everybody helped, and uh, yeah, and, and I think this is this is so so important. Uh, in those early days, all the footwear trade in the UK was going down. It was going down because. The not everybody, but people were going to the Far East, being able to make the product in the Far East, bring it into the UK at one third of the price that you could manufacture it in the UK. And I'm sure the same is the same in America. They could they could do that at one third, and the product was good. So the buyers, the retailers, they didn't want to pay the price of the cost of a product in the UK. They didn't want to pay that. This was a global sort of business. People bring so the result of that, all these small footwear factories in the UK, they were going out of business, and and I think they were going out of business at the rate of at least one a month, which led us to uh, led us to the point where every every month I was going to an auction because once the once the factory decided to close down. There was machinery, materials, everything was there. And uh, I was going to the auction to buy materials at a better price. And I don't know how many I must have gone to, dozens in my time. But I, I do remember, and uh, this is, I really got a friend out of this because uh, there was one guy there, and he did have a rather large factory up in the... Uh, the shoemaking area around where we were. We were in Bolton, but this was just slightly further east from us, about 15 miles away, was a big shoemaking uh, area. And he had a, a really large factory. They were making slippers and uh, rather inexpensive shoes. And the, the auctioneer the auctioneer would pick up an item, whatever it was, and we, he'd go through that to the people and they people would either buy or not buy it. And everything in that uh, didn't sell, the auctioneer would look at this guy called John. John Willie, he was called. He'd look at John, and John would just nod. Nothing else would be said. He would just nod. And this fascinated me. It fascinated me. I thought, what's going on here? 
And anyway, I think it was the next occasion I sat next to, to John and uh, I was telling him about an experience I had. I bought a lot of leather and I'd hired a van, but the leather was too much for the van and the van was more like a, a speedboat. It was way down at the back. And I got stopped by the police, got taken to a, a wave bridge and I was so overweight that... Yes, and it probably cost me more for that leather than if I'd bought it through the tannery because I had to pay a fine. I'm telling John about this, whatever. And uh, he said, oh, well, he said, if you buy anything, just let my men pick it up and they'll bring it up to, because, say, he was only 15 miles away, so they'll drop it off at you uh, wherever you are. So I got to know John and I said, John, what do you do with all this stuff that you buy that nobody else wants? And... We're talking about anything, anything that was left, he would take. And at the end of every auction, he would go with the auctioneer into the bank room and decide how much he would pay for all this stuff. So uh, John said, well, next time when we go, let's let's go together to these auctions in future instead of you driving down. So I went with John. He said, you come around to my factory. <laughs> so I went around to his factory and uh, he showed me into this massive warehouse where all his bits and pieces were all the stuff that he bought and you would see a stuffed bear or a stuffed crocodile you know anything everything and i spied a machine and i said john it's called a pounding up machine it takes the wrinkles out of the toes of the boots when you, you put it on this machine i said john um can i buy that machine off you and he said no oh well, well can you rent it me and he said no Okay, then. He said, you can have it. Oh, thank you, John. Right. He said, just give him it back when you finish with it. <laughs> and I, I, I must, I think in the end, almost half of my factory must have been full of his, uh, un, he said, unwanted uh, machinery. I'm sure there were occasions when he knew I wanted a machine and he would probably go and buy it and let me have it. You know, those were the sort of people that were our friends, friends in, in the business. And uh, no, he, he, was, he was a great guy, a real great guy. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but uh, yeah. And, and this was having fun. And I say, you know, whatever you're doing, you've, you've got to try and make sure you get, you have enough fun with doing it. And and that will get you through all these weird times. And uh, I mean, we were growing, we were doing nicely and, uh, Again, I had friends in the industry, and one, one of them, they were, they were manufacturing football boots. That's all they did is football boots, soccer. They only made soccer boots. We we were there, and we did still make some cycle shoes. But we had a training shoes, spike shoes, track and fields. We made quite a range of uh, that. And, of course, the one thing that was really growing in America was running. Running was really growing, and so it was, it was also growing in the UK. So... Uh, and they were a much bigger company than, than we were. And, and the guy who was the head salesman who I knew very well said to Joe, he said, why don't we be your distributor? You know, you make all those. We're in the same stores. We're just doing soccer. You're doing all these other products. Why don't we be your distributor? Great. We'll do that. So uh, they became our distributor in the UK. And uh, this was okay until the guy who owned the business, the guy who owned the business decided he would retire and have his son-in-law run the business. And unfortunately, the son-in-law just didn't, well, 
my friend just did not get on with the son-in-law at all. Uh, result of which, excuse me, result of which my friend left the business. And he, he went to set up uh, um, the, uh, I think it was really the sports uh, division for Barter. I don't know if you know who Barter are, but Barter. Even today, Barter is still the, by volume, the biggest shoemakers in the world, by volume. We don't see them much in America, and you don't see them at all in Europe now, but they are in India, and they're in Latin America. Anyway, he, he went. The problem is that the son, well, the son-in-law, made an absolute mess of the business. And my friend had taken this whole sales team with him. So within six months, this company that were now my distributors, their business just went down the pan, really down, just, just failed. To the point where you have to, they had to go into liquidation, and they were taking all my, they were taking about eighty percent of my production. I had some small things we were making climbing boots for a friend and bits and other pieces, and I, I had to go down to down to the place with a rather large van and bring all my shoes back that they still owed me money for, and then we had a problem because if the bank had known. The bank had known we were not going to get paid uh, for this. Uh, I'm afraid they may also have pulled the plug. But we, we just had to sit down and everybody had to think about, well, what, what can we do? For schools. And we, we went around to all the schools and we offered them the product at half the retail price. And I think it took us about two, three months, but we sold all the product. We got all the money in. And this, again... A lot of people in the industry, they they knew what had happened. So I got my friend who'd gone to Barter, Joe, can you make us 200 pairs a week? We we got, I think it was Hummel. Hummel, you may have heard of Hummel. They they also manufactured. They, they wanted, I think it was two or 300 pairs a week. Stylo, who were rather a retailer in the UK, they wanted shoes. All of a sudden, people come and say, Joe, can you make us, can you make us? And our production was almost back to back to normal. With within six months, we were almost back to normal. But this is the point. We're also, we're making that the all our employees. When when this thing happened, when our distributor went out of business, we we had to cut production. We had to cut it right down to probably twenty five percent. And uh, I had to face the guy and say, "Look, guys." I'm sorry about this, but we're going to have to lay you off. We can't, we can't keep you in employment. And some said, "Okay, that's okay. Can we come back when you know when you've got over this? Can you come? Can we come back?" I said, "You can always come back. That's great." And there were one or two who said, "Look, we don't want paying. We'll just keep working. You know, if we can stay here, can we stay working?" And I think for us, we felt really that. Uh, I mean, that that was fabulous. You know, we had to say, "Look, guys, no, we." We can't accept you working for us for no money, but certainly you can come back as soon as we get back on our feet. And uh, I think it's because, you know, as with the trade, also with the people who work for us, we treated them as friends. We, you know, we would uh, we would try to share everything with them. We could share that, you're part of Reebok. And they, they all felt that pride. They all felt that, even when we're a small company, they all felt that pride that, yeah, Reebok, wow. We're all part of this. So, and I think that was great. And I say within six months, we were back up and running. And at the same time, uh, there was a, another 
uh, wholesaler who wanted to be our distributor. They again had picked up that we we'd been let down by this original distributor. Can we be your distributor? And okay, I made a better deal with them than the first one. And and they they were not a manufacturer. They they were actually a wholesaler. They wholesaled a lot of products. And so we were up and running. I think it took about six months, and we were back there and even bigger. But uh, I still wanted the American market. So, Paul, you're you're going through this. You you've been hit with these different things. You learn that lesson there, right, of being able to make the better deal the second time. Um, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier. Of you had that job of finding the pulse of the company, and it was yeah. right about the same time that you were looking at trying to do that that jump to the American market, right? And you were looking at how do we expand? What's the pulse? Can you can you share with us what did you land on back then of what do I want Reebok to be known as as we expand? I, I, I think, I think for us it was uh, okay. We're not the biggest, we're not the smartest, but we are more honest, and we work with you. We, we wanted people to feel that they were whoever they were, whether they were an athlete or whoever we saw. We wanted them to feel a partnership deal. You know, we we want to work with you. What do you want? And we asked the athletes what they wanted. We, we we work with them, and and I think for us that was that was half the pleasure. Half the pleasure was work, just working with the guys, and uh, you know they would. Uh, well, I, I think one of the things that uh, we did do this study is that I went down. I I I thought, what did Fosters not do? They didn't have a, they didn't have a representative. They didn't have somebody going around to stores selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were they were selling. As it all was sold through newspapers, through uh, magazines, they they'd always done a direct sale. But of course, the stores stores were taking the business. And, you know, people in those days. I, I think online selling now is bigger than it's ever been. But online selling then you didn't have online because we didn't have this. They had right. to read a magazine. You know, right now you can put different messages. They had to read a magazine, and if there were Part of an athletics company, great. And I, so I decided, look, Joe, you better go and see some of these sports stores. And I got in my car and went to went out on the road selling the product. So uh, I'm I'm calling on these people and okay, one or two said, yeah, that's great, I love it, that's nice. And some would say, who's Reebok? Oh, I'm showing the product, say, nice product. Then they look on the shelf and they say, look, I've got Adidas, uh, I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Why did he need Reebok? He didn't. You know, he wasn't going to wear my shoes. The athletes were wearing my shoes. They're the one that needed Reebok. So I guess we're really fortunate in the fact that in those days, there was three A's, Amateur Athletic Association. I think mostly now, I think three A's still exists, but I think it's more professional now. But in those days, it was definitely amateur. The Amateur Athletic Association, they produced a handbook. And in that handbook was the name and address of every secretary of every running club in the country. And there must have been three or four hundred. And I thought, well, this is simple. Why don't I just write them all a letter? So I wrote them all a letter and offered them all a discount, 15% discount. Uh, And if somebody wanted to be an agent for Reebok, then 
just let me know and they could have the 50% discount. I, I think of that first, uh, first I, I got almost 100 agents. All of a sudden, all these clubs were buying from me direct. And I sent a second letter to remind people uh, who hadn't responded. And eventually I ended up with about 250, maybe more agents throughout the UK. And they were, you know, if an agent would sell two, three pairs of shoes a week, I'm sort of almost a thousand pairs. It's, so my, you know, we were growing. Then these retailers, the shops have been calling on and saying, well, who's Reebok? They started calling me because the athletes, they said, you, you're supplying athletes direct. You're supplying our club, our local clubs direct. And I said, yes. And I said, but I'm not undercutting you. I'm only giving a 15% discount off the retail price. And I'm sure you do that for the, your local clubs. And yeah, most of them said, yeah, we'll give a small discount for our local clubs. And, uh, and they were saying, well, if you stop selling direct, we'll stock your shoes. And I said, no, I'm sorry. We're not going to do that. But we will advertise, if you want to stock our shoes, we'll advertise the fact that you stock our shoes. You will get them at wholesale price. So you're going to make your money. And I'm sure most athletes would prefer to come down to your store than write to me and send money and do a mail order. And so probably 10, 15% of the retailers refused to do that. But the others, they said, okay, we'll do that. So our business, you know, we, we were growing business in that way. Now, I mean, now you just have uh, stores that sell shoes, footlocker. You know, they just sell shoes now, just athletic shoes. But that market, that has changed tremendously. But in my day, I needed to get to America. And that's 1968, my first trip over to Chicago in February. Ah, cold, very cold. I <laughs> yeah, never expected timing, though. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Chicago in February. But... Uh, a great experience. A great experience. And so shortly after that, um, you met Paul. And I know he's a big player in, in your story. So I yes. I want us to I want to make sure that we we have a conversation around him and, and the interactions with him before this wraps up. So can right. you can you share with us with us about, about Paul the first time you met him and how that relationship developed? Well, by by the time I met Paul. Running was big. It was a big category in America. Nike had grown out of oh, massive. And uh, Runner's World was there. Runner's World was the magazine. I think I think the magazine was really uh, uh, really a big part of the growth of the running scene because what the magazine, what Runner's World gave you, it told you where all the races were, 10Ks, half marathons, whatever you wanted to run it. It told you where the races were, and it told you, who won the races? So you got a lot of information. In fact, you could probably see your name on the list of people who ran in such a, a marathon. And so that was so big, so important. The runners' world was was really big, and uh, we're we're getting to uh, the point where Bob Anderson, who was the editor of um, and the owner of Runners' World, he had decided, I think, about nineteen seventy six, but uh, they they were so big. <laughs> runners' world was so big. He decided he could tell everybody which was the best shoe, which was the number one shoe. And uh, that was Nike, of course. It was a Nike shoe. And you imagine Nike, there's, there's 350 million Americans about that time in, uh, in the 60s and 10% of running. So, you, you know, you've got 35 million 
people now out running and maybe 10%, maybe more than 10%. As soon as uh, Bob Anderson, Nike, that's the number one shoe. That's the best one. They all wanted this shoe. Maybe three and a half, four million people. Well, Nike were growing, but all of a sudden with that demand, they couldn't meet that demand because they were importing shoes from Japan and Asia. They just couldn't meet demand. Uh, which the retail trade, people like Foot Locker, all these people come in and saying, I want that pair of Nike and we can't get them. So they couldn't get the shoes. So it was really a mess. Uh, Bob Anderson changed his mind on this second one uh, a year after, and it was a different number one shoe, which which even uh, complicated that, that <laughs> even worse. Because again, whether it was a Brooks New Balance or a Tonic or whatever, I can't remember who it was second year. Same thing happened though. The product... They couldn't get the product. Third year, Bob Anderson changed it and did five stars. He, star ratings. He was going to go star ratings on shoes. That was the time that we knew we had a chance to get a five-star shoe. Become number one, that was a, a big lottery. We would never, never become number one, mainly because we weren't the biggest advertisers. <laughs> and uh, we were across the, the Atlantic, across the pond there. So we would never get number one, but a five-star shoe, we thought we could get. And so I am at 1978 at the NSGA show in Chicago, and I meet up with Paul Feynman. He is running Boston Camping. He is there as a, an exhibitor, Boston Camping. They they sold tents, all the fishing rods, everything that was sort of the outdoor stores sell. So they were doing that. And... Uh, I met up with Paul, and Paul said, look, he knew all about the fact that there were star ratings on shoes, knew it, because and I'm chatting with him about getting five stars. And uh, he said, if you get a five-star shoe, I'll be your distributor. Okay. So uh, I did show him Aztec. Aztec, this, I said, this is going to be our five-star shoe. We've got this in. It's going in. It's going to be tested. Yeah, he said, but it's not a five-star shoe yet. No, it's not a five-star shoe yet. Well, he said, if you get it, that's okay. I also got Kmart. Running was so big, Kmart came along and said, we would like to sell you a product, right? And we like 25,000 pairs. Oh, great. But we want a better price. Oh. You know, I, I knew if we got a five-star shoe that uh, we would have to go... Our factory in the UK would be one too small, two too expensive, and we'd have to go to the Far East, to Korea, as it happened in those days. And so I had met with people who were agents for the Korean factories. I also had a friend at Barter. Barter, say, of a massive shoe manufacturers. He'd gone from our distributor, went out to business. He'd gone down there to set up their, uh, their sports division. And he said, Joe, you get a five-star shoe and you get a distributor, we'll help. So they would make shoes also. So I, I'd got it covered. <laughs> so when uh, when Kmart came and said, look, we, we want a better price, Barter would give a better price, but not the better price he wanted. He wanted a better price that came out of Korea. So uh, I, I knew that. And uh, this is this is in the February, and I'd met Paul Fireman, and uh, the shoe edition of uh, Runner's World came out in August. So we'd got to go from February to August before we knew whether we get a five-star shoe or not. Five star shoe or not. So uh, in between that time, I went to America and I went to see Kmart. <coughs> Saw the buyer who'd seen me in uh, Chicago 
And he said, yeah, we'd like to give you an order for 25,000 birds. And, and I'm thinking, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that. And then I went to Boston where Paul Feynman was. Um, and uh, Paul Feynman was totally different. Came out with a big organization that could buy 25,000 birds, put them on the shelf. But they would judge you by the square footage of the money they were making of the square footage that they had in their store reserved for your product. And if you didn't match that, 25,000 purse could be my first order and my last order. That could have been it. But also, I'm thinking, but this is not what a brand does. This is not for a brand. This is for somebody filling the market with quick desire. Shoes. Just wanted shoes. Um, I wanted a distributor. I wanted the brand. And Paul Feynman, nothing like as big as Kmart. He was only a small... Uh, as I say, a small wholesaler. And, and he, he was obviously tired, fed up with his with the business they were doing. There was there was Paul, his brother, and his brother-in-law. They were the three people in, in run, running the company. And uh, I could see Paul was just tired of it. He, he'd been doing it for 10 years, and they were doing the same business 10 years. So they were making a little bit of money, but not a great deal of money. So we wait. And I, I go back. Oh, last week in July, I phoned Paul. I said, Paul, can you go down to the local kiosk and see if Runner's World is there? Because it should be out by now. An hour later, he came back with his Runner's World. And running back said, Joe, he said, as say, five stars. That was it. Fantastic. I mean, that was one of those moments that, you know, you... You just wait for it in life. But he said, not only that, uh, Aztec got five stars. Midas, which was a world racing shoe, that got five stars. And also our spike track shoe, Inca, was the gold range. We called it the gold range. Uh, that also got five stars. So we had three five stars. And that was the difference. We've been trying. I had six distributors in that 11-year period. And one of them I had for four years. And we just couldn't get the product in. But we were pushing to get the product in. Now, all of a sudden, once we got five stars, we were in demand. All of a sudden, people, retailers saying, can we get some of those uh, Reebok shoes? So uh, we were in demand. And that that was the difference. And Paul Feynman, of course, he, uh, well, I, he, was beginning, he was being my agent, and I went back uh, over to see him and expecting that they would bolt our business on the Reebok business will be built onto their existing business. No, they closed Boston Camping. Paul went his way, his brother went another way, and his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law opened a car lot. <laughs> so, so they just closed the business. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I thought this would be great. We've got they got everything in place there. You know, we were just gone in and bolted on and expanded the business. No. So Paul was on his own. He had taken with him the salesman, and he'd taken two or three people with him and moved to a different, a new office. But um, he was hungry. He needed that business. And he had experience of uh, wholesaling, which is what I needed. He had the experience, even though he was in the outdoor business and we're in the sports business. But he is almost connected, but they are different stores. So Paul was, uh, Paul just worked on it. But problem is, you know, we still hadn't got a lot of money and Paul didn't have a lot of money. And suddenly there was a demand for thousands of Reebok shoes. 
And they, that point, that was the point where, well, how do you pay for it? And I remember coming over back over to uh, to America, and we went round to different various places, just trying to trying to get uh, trying to get that back in. Uh, you you want to know there's a company called Mano. Mano were in the Empire State Building, and uh, they. They they were a sourcing company. They actually sourced products in the Far East, and uh, we we needed product sourcing in the Far East. But more than just a sourcing company is that they would they would give somebody a credit line, and a credit line meant that you could uh, depend on a big credit line, usually use, use for uh, a bit of equity in a company that they'd give you a credit line. And uh, in fact, uh, Mano had turned down Nike. And uh, and Nike had managed to get some a bank. They managed to get to the bank, and and get uh, get their uh, the money there. And I I still remember having the conversation with uh, with the guy Manovitz Mano, he, and he said that look, I turned down Nike because I didn't think they would make it. I don't think you will make it either. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to back you. <laughs> so wow. He lost two. He lost two. He lost Nike and he lost Reebok. And uh, we eventually ended up with uh, Pentland, which is uh, Stephen Rubin, which which is an English company. But that, that was a, a good connection. We got there. And Paul had his connection. Paul Paul is, a, is Jewish. And, you know, that's great because they have a wonderful connection. <laughs> they have lots of good connections. And so he knew uh, American Built Right. American Built Right are in Boston and a good friend of his, Bob, uh, forget his name now, but he he was the head of uh, American Built Right, and he knew he he knew uh, Stephen Rubin in the UK. They were, they were good friends, and it was Stephen Rubin who eventually who also had a, a company called um, Asco that sourced out of Korea, and it was that company that uh, we eventually got a credit line for, and that that allowed us to grow. Which was uh, great. I know it was a bit of a headache for Stephen at, 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 in the early days because we we had a tremendous. Uh, <laughs> I think I think we were very soon up to twenty million dollars, and in those days that was a bit of a panic time. But that's when we got into aerobics, of course. Yeah, that that story is really interesting. Um, you know, for anybody that hasn't read the book, that will you need to read the book. You know, the fact that you gave up. Um, a lot of your percentage of Reebok USA, the most of it to your uh, to Paul. And then you needed the, the there was an inflection point where you had to give up the rest of your equity to Paul so that 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 deal with Stephen Rubin could happen. And I just thought, you know, this is a, you know, an inflection point where many entrepreneurs kind of come to where, you know, especially we're growing we need capital we don't have capital you have to give it up and you it was kind of like giving up part of your baby in order for the baby to survive and you did that um and so i just thought that was really good and the angel martinez uh yeah. his role and visionary like you co you cooperated quite well with the other visionaries he kind of saw that aerobics market talk us yeah. talk to us a little bit about that well, I mean, they, they, we were doing nicely. You know, business was growing fantastic. Well, we thought it was fantastic anyway. And uh, um, you know, Arnold Martinez was a, was our um, he was a technical rep, 
So the technical rep doesn't go to sell. He goes to see all the uh, the sales people on the floor and show them all the benefits of the product. And uh, his wife, his wife was going to these lessons, these classes, and coming back and full of it. And she was with her friends. And Arnold says, uh, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and she said, we're doing aerobics. And, of course, Arnold just looked at him, what is aerobics? <laughs> and so she said, well, it's the, it's exercising to music, and we really love it. So Arnold <laughs> went down to the next class, and, you know, there's 20, 30 girls there, and uh, they're all exercising to music. The instructor has got a pair of sneakers on, and we think they were New Balance. Uh, and half of the uh, the classes were in the same sneaker. The other half, they're not wearing any sneakers. They're not wearing any footwear at all. And that was his light bulb moment. And I thought, well, why don't we make a shoe just for aerobics, just for women, on a woman's last, in women's sizes? And I think he got on the next plane up to see Paul Feynman. And Paul Feynman, Arnold's given him the whole speech. And Paul is saying, whoa, slow down. Arnold, slow down. You know, well, why do we want to make dancing shoes for girls? You know, we're a running company. And we're doing well. And Arnold, no matter how he tried, they, Paul was sort of saying, slow down, watch it. You know, look after it, and, you know, if it seems to be something we should get into, we'll do that. But Arnold just went to the back door. He just got fed up with talking to Paul. <laughs> went to see Steve Liggett at the back door and said, Steve, he made a better job on Steve. Steve, maybe 200 pairs. And uh, he got his 200 pairs, got them down to L.A., gave them out to the instructors and some of the, you know, really keen uh, girls doing aerobics, and they loved them. They just loved the shoe. It was made out of, uh, it was made with uh, glove leather, which you don't make shoes out of glove leather. But this is this is marketing for you. It's, you do not <laughs> make shoes out of glove leather. You you make gloves out of glove leather. Uh, but on saying that, we had we had previously made a shoe out of glove leather, um, but that was a, called World Ten, and it was a very very lightweight racing shoe, a marathon shoe, in fact. But we used it. Suede side out. We, we didn't use the finished side, uh, the skin side, whereas they were using the skin side. And the problem with that is that you've got to stick a sole to it. When you put it on the last, you've then got to stick the sole on. In order to get the sole on, you've got to have the upper take the take the uh, adhesive, and it won't it won't stick to the finish that they have on a on a on, on normal skin on the skin side. So they've got to take that off. They've got to rough it. They've got to sand that off and make it rough. Well, glove leather is only one millimeter thick. One millimeter, that's not thick at all. That's very thin. And then when you start taking a bit away, because you've got to get the adhesive into it, you end up with probably 0.7 of a millimeter. And of course, that means it's very weak. You can actually rip. You can tear it like a piece of paper, glove, glove leather. So It's so fragile. So these these shoes, once they're making them, they start to break out. Right where the sole meets the upper, they were just breaking away. We were so lucky. We were in America. We were in Los Angeles. The girls didn't mind. The girls just went and bought another pair. 
great. But we knew we couldn't take that shoe anywhere else because it would be a failure. So this was the time when I got to hear about it. Wow, what are you making about glove leather? Well, when we want that nice, comfortable feel. Oh, but no, you, you, you can't do that. I mean, in those days, sports shoes were made out of more harder leather. Like, you know, the, the early tennis shoes were very hard. You, you'd almost worn them out before you'd, you'd broke them in. Yeah, but we need this soft leather. So I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do. So what did they do? They lined it with nylon. And, and by sticking nylon to it, they took away the one property that the leather has, and that is it breathes. Leather breathes. You stick nylon to it, stops it breathing. Oh. So what did they do then? They punched holes in the front just to sort of get the air back into it. And that became half of the that became part of the design. These mm-hmm. holes in the front became part of the design. It it didn't take long. It took a few months before we eventually got a, a better leather, more like a garment leather. So it was it was thicker, it was better, but it was still soft. But uh, we when aerobics arrived, we were doing nine million. Nine million sounded good to us. Nine billion dollars as a running company, but that don't, that's not a big company. That's quite small for America, and so nobody knew us like they knew Adidas, they knew Nike. They were male. They were sweaty. They were sports. Now all of a sudden, this small British company with a little flag on the side of a nice white shoe, soft. All of a sudden, we come in there, and we're only making ladies' shoes. So we became a woman's company. And it was that that, in a sense, I don't know whether they picked on that because they realized how clever that marketing was, uh, or it was an accident. I, I think they knew that that was good marketing because as soon as it just took off, incredible. Within a year from 9 million, it was 33, 30 million in one year. And... Then we were 90 million in the year after. And by that time, the guys are seeing these shoes because these shoes are just selling so hot. And the guys wanted, but they couldn't have it. So, and we would say we went from uh, 30 to 90 to 300, and then we went up to 900 million. And in, in five years, we'd gone from almost zero to 900, almost uh, from zero to a billion in five years selling product. And that was uh, ladies, uh, women, aerobics. So that was colossal. And when he called whites, you know, we've been looking for white space. That was white space. Yep. That was an area that uh, we could go into. And both Nike and Adidas stepped back and said, this is just going to be a fad. This can, you know, this won't go that far. So they didn't try to get into it. Plus mm-hmm. the fact Reebok were this nice woman's company. All women wanted that. They didn't want to share Nike. They didn't want to share Adidas. They wanted something for themselves. So in terms of hitting a market with something at the right time that did the right thing, that really uh, took off, that 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 took us to, uh, eventually it took us to number one. So we are nowhere near the end of your story. There's so many more things for us to, to go into. <coughs> So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to book you down for a for a part two because it's so interesting. There's so many. Pieces I think we here. do. So yeah, I think we can hey, do a part two. Yeah, and that's a nice little tease at the end of hey, we went from five million or three million to a billion in five years. So um, so Joe, is there any <laughs> any final thing you want to to say 
for uh for this episode anyway anything you want to say to the listeners before we wrap up well right now um you've heard of uh, shoemaker and shoemaker is uh i don't know how many books were selling but it's certainly creating a lot of interest enough mm-hmm. interest that uh, within within two or three weeks from now we're over in charlotte and we're starting off on a tour and we're going to be touring um, universities what was that there and uh and I think Gary's uh, going to join us on that one. Uh, yes. for Charlotte, yes. We, we're going to be uh, joining together. So that's the beginning of a tour, Gary. And we're, we're, going, we're going to have some fun, I hope. Oh, <laughs> if you're there and I'm there, I guarantee you it will be a party. Uh, but, but yeah, the, this is the first of 16 cities. And I, I'm thrilled to be able to join you. I, I've got a huge love for Reebok. As you know, my son was a shoe designer at Reebok. He's actually flying back from Denver. He has his own shoe company, but he wants to uh, hear you and meet you. So oh, I'm so great. thrilled that he's going to be back. Um, but your story is amazing. And if anybody, like, take this away. Been looking for white space. You understood white space go to the place where other people aren't you did a very good job and it wasn't like it was a linear and easy journey it was a very jagged and difficult but you still had fun and you maintained a sense of humor and joy and also gratitude it's it's very apparent in your book joe you you have a, a a gratefulness for those around you and i think they paid it back many times because you were sowing good seeds of gratitude. So thank you, Joe. Can't wait to be on the stage with you in Charlotte, North Carolina on May 4. So thank you. It's great. Yeah, we're we're looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, we, I I won't have a cold anymore. I think I'll be (laughs) over that. But uh, yeah, it will be great. And uh, that's just the start. So we, we've got right. a real lot of fun in uh, in America. We, we really are. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, we, we're, we're looking forward to that. And we, I think it's going to take those 14 cities. We're going to do about a month. And we're going to sort of take a couple of weeks off and then come back again for another month. Yes. Take, yeah. Because at my age, I need to take a couple of weeks off every now and then. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've earned it. <laughs> and just sort of uh, relax a little bit. But, you know, we're really looking forward to that. And this has been great. Thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, I think number two, yeah, that might be another good time. I, I think yeah. we're going to do the first of um, first time that we've ever done that on the Anything But Typical podcast. But, hey, when you start bec- becoming predictable, you have to mix it up so it will be Anything But Typical. And we'll do two two versions of this, Joe. So... Because part okay. two is really good, and we'll kind of recap a little bit, and then we'll move into part two. I'll, we'll schedule this with Julie and uh, get that happening. Oh yeah, Julie's doing talking these days. You know, she's now she's now part of Global Women. And, oh, how uh, wonderful! Yeah, and, and uh, have you got something going on in New York? It depends if I'm there. Oh yes, she's in, she's invited to New York to speak in New York on Global Women. So, oh, wonderful. So it, it has Excellent to coincide. job. Yeah, it has to coincide with what we're doing, unfortunately. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it can do that, then fine. But uh, yes, so we uh, we're keeping busy. We're just uh, we're just all over the place <laughs> at the moment. Yes, sounds like it. <laughs> well, I love thank, it. Thanks, Joe.